0: This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. For April 12th, I'm Jackie Forrest.
1: And I'm Peter Tertzakian, and I have in front of me my coffee, which I brought, and Our special guest today, Evan Wilson, was kind enough to bring another cup of coffee. So we have in front of us two cups of coffee. So we are really jazzed up for today's... What's that?
0: This is going to be like a (laughs) fast-paced... This is going to be a uh,
1: (laughs) fast-paced podcast. podcast. And we are delighted to have with us our special guest, as I said, Evan Wilson. He is the Regional Director for the Prairies for the Canadian Wind Energy Association. So welcome, Evan.
2: Yes, thanks for having me. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, people... we, We don't talk too fast for people... Uh, listening with all this coffee. No, no. So good.
1: We're uh, delighted to have you also because next week, I believe it's on Wednesday, is the Spring Forum for the Canadian Wind Energy Association, and that will be held in Banff, Alberta. Why don't you give us the pitch for why we should go to that?
2: Yeah, so the Spring Forum is our annual spring conference for the Canadian Wind Energy Association. Our members include uh, wind energy developers, operators, uh, companies along the supply chain, such as manufacturers, as well as, as companies that participate in the development and construction of wind farms we're hosting it in Alberta this year because we thought, oh, well, the election is going on. There's going to be lots of interest in Alberta. We picked such a good date. It's the actual day after the Alberta election. So yeah,
1: well, we're going to talk about that.
2: Yeah. So if you uh, if you want to get the wind industry's first real uh, response and reaction to to how there. the election turns out, that, that's where you can go to do it. But on top of that, in addition to policy, there's also going to be discussion of operations and maintenance, discussion of new technology, discussions of, of how to build markets across the country. So So it's going to be a really interesting event.
0: And can people still go? Uh, is it sold out or no are tickets still available?
2: There's, there's tickets. There's definitely tickets still available and, and we'll welcome anybody that uh, would like to come. So if you go to www.canwea.ca, that's where you can check out all of our information. Well,
1: fantastic. I'm excited about it because I've been invited to speak at it. And uh, I'm going to be talking about the history of wind and how in the 18th and 19th centuries, wind was one of the dominant forms of power, mechanical power, and of course it succumbed to the Industrial Revolution and the fossil fuels. But wind is making a resurgence, as we know, and we're going to talk about that today. So I'm going to talk about the transitions, the opportunities for wind, and the challenges from a macro level, from a Canadian level, and from an Alberta level. And we're going to talk all about that today.
0: All right, so let's get going then. We'll talk about the kind of broader context first, the rise of renewables. I think the biggest change when it comes to wind is the cost has come down a lot over the last five, six years, making it very competitive. In fact, looking at Lazard data, which is a group that puts out an annual report that shows the cost of all sorts of different types of power generation, it's actually showing you know, wind, if in the right conditions, in the low, in the best case scenario, can be the lowest cost generation, mm-hmm. even lower than solar or natural gas. So, uh, let's talk about that sure. big change.
1: Yeah, why don't you talk about the cost of wind? And I'm actually interested in even the competition between wind mm-hmm. and solar. So you know, over to you.
2: That Lazard report is always really exciting. I have a friend who calls it renewable nerd Christmas. When that comes out, it always comes out in December. And and like you point out, this year it shows that wind, and I should say unsubsidized wind, um, is coming in at prices that are lower than pretty well every other kind of generation type that's out there. A low edge of about $29 per megawatt hour. And even this, this Lazard this year is the first one that shows where there is is when you compare um, the cost of certain wind farms that are currently being built with certain coal facilities that are operating, you're actually at, on a per megawatt basis. Wind is getting to the point where it's it's more low cost to run than, than operating coal plants.
0: So when you look at the cost per unit of energy... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it costs you a lot to run a coal plant. You've got to buy your fuel, you have labor, yeah. there's always ongoing costs. So this is really a big change. It basically says that you're better off to put in a brand new greenfield plant and shut down your existing plant because your your operating costs, you know, every the dollars you have to invest just to get each unit of energy out are higher than just putting in a greenfield wind. Right. But, that, that's what it's saying.
1: Well, but wind is basically free, okay? But that there's maintenance cost associated. Yeah, so is and, that where the cost is.
2: Yeah, that's where the cost would be. So, so one of the advantages that that you have with wind, I mean, it's it's a big capital investment at the front end. You're putting a big machine into the ground there. But once it's built, it's relatively low maintenance costs. There's there's no fuel costs, and and also there's no volatility uh, that's added to the price based on volatility and fuel costs. There's also you know in this world we're we're moving into where there's a price on carbon. There there's not the exposure to fluctuating prices on carbon. So yeah, once you get the concrete and the steel in the ground, about 80% of the cost is eaten up right there or, or put in the ground right, right there. Okay. So the, so, so
1: the cost of installing and operating wind and these things are typically, their lifespan is what, 30, 50 years? I don't know. Uh, yeah.
2: I mean, the, the new wind turbines you're looking at are between 25 and 30 years. 25 to 30 years. Lifespan. Okay. So yep.
1: that's calculated in the overall cost. Yes. As you put it in, but you don't have the fluctuations in Input fuel cost, but you Mm -hmm. do have fluctuations in wind.
2: Right. Yeah. Wind is is a variable resource. So you're not going to have a a grid that is all wind. You want to get the best mix of all the different technology types for your region so that people can, you know, when they turn on the Mm -hmm. TV, that that electricity is delivered. and, And wind can play a big role in that at that cost.
0: So what you're saying is when the wind doesn't blow, we don't get the electricity today. We need other sources of power during those times. So at that time, you would have uh, either natural gas generation or generation from solar or Mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some perceptions around wind. I want to know if they're true because, you know, it's not as reliable because it only is available when the wind blows. And we can't necessarily predict that. Well, I guess we can predict it, but it's not always there when we need the power. Is it true that most wind generation occurs at night? A lot of people say that, you know, a lot of the wind power comes on when people really aren't needing power.
2: Definitely, you can look at what the production patterns are. And you can see that, you know, it's typically windier in the evenings compared to how it is in the day. And you can pair it on your grid or, or even on the site is, is where we're seeing things move with things like solar, because the sun is shining during the day, and then wind is very complementary to it. So yeah, wind is going uh, during the evening and things but but you know, there still is load to be met during the evenings, especially in a jurisdiction uh, like Alberta, where, you know, you have a large industrial load that's working on, on a 24-hour basis, where it tends to get dark pretty early in the day during the winter. So, you know, there is um, typically electricity that's needed when wind is blowing. So, you know, when you do have a relatively flat load, um, you know, it, the wind does help throughout the, the day, which we see in Alberta because of the mm-hmm. industrial industrial load
0: so this gets to the wind and storage idea right, yeah. right and um you know over the last few years we've seen a lot of news about solar with battery mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. declining cost for that and we had talked in a previous podcast about the contracts that just were awarded in hawaii for solar plus battery at eight to 12 cents per kilowatt mm-hmm, hour mm-hmm. very low cost but we don't really see or i haven't seen very many wind plus storage bids out there are they do they exist
2: that is something that will be coming certainly in, in the future. I unfortunately don't have a, any expertise in the solar and storage, so I can't speak to why that's something that, that we tend to see more. But I do think that storage as a general piece of generation type technology that is going to provide flexibility and provide services to the grid is something we haven't typically seen in Alberta Yes. I think that will be coming. The Alberta Electric System Operator recently did a report on dispatchable renewables and storage. Basically, two questions. Do we need storage to make the grid work? And what do we need to do to attract storage? So the first question, the answer was, well, we, we don't need storage to hit the 30% renewables goal by 2030. But as the Alberta Electric System operator, they want to make sure that they're allowing investment and getting out of the way of the market. So the answer to the second question was there would be opportunities for storage if the rules around storage change in the province. So right now if you are a, a load you pay for transmission and if you are a generator you don't pay for transmission. So a storage unit or a battery is going to be load some of the time when it's when it's charging, it's going to be generation other parts of the time, but it's actually paying for transmission through the whole mm-hmm.
0: yeah. The whole, the whole time there. So, so that's making the economics in Alberta for storage much harder to exactly. justify. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: So I, I think that the ASO is aware they've got what they call roadmaps that they're going to work through to, to figure out how to make storage work. You know, we haven't seen it make headlines yet here in Alberta, but I, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly the optimism that it's going to
1: happen. Well, happen. we're going to talk about Alberta in a minute here, but yeah. I want to back up and paint for our listeners the Canadian picture for electricity. Okay, So this does not include energy for other uses such as transportation. So in Canada, we've got a very unique situation and that poses some opportunity and some challenges for renewables like wind. One of the things about Canada's electricity consumption as a whole is that like most Western countries, the consumption growth is pretty flat, right? I mean, it's just not growing. And there are many reasons for that, including efficiency, including the fact that many Western countries have... Transition to more of a service-oriented economy rather than a heavy manufacturing economy, which was outsourced to places like China. So the fact that we have a flat consumption profile is always challenging when a new entrant comes in and tries to take market share, because you have to substitute for somebody else rather than feed into a growth market. And that gets us down to the regional level when we think about the various provinces. So in places like British Columbia and Quebec, overwhelmingly, the electricity is supplied by hydro. In, in, in Quebec, it's almost like 99% is hydro. So it's very difficult to push out hydro, isn't it? I mean, like it's, it, it in itself is a renewable and so there is actually no decarbonization incentive because there's hardly any carbon being emitted in the power sector.
2: Yeah, we've got a, you know, overall looking at the whole country, I mean, we've got about an 80% yeah. non-emitting grid. You asked about the lifespan of wind. Taking a look at the lifespan of these hydro facilities, I mean, you're looking at, you know, it makes- hundred years. Yeah, it's hundred years. It makes yeah. wind look like it's not operating for very long at all. Yeah, so, so yeah, these are, these are hard to displace. So and for
1: the, most of the country, the dominant incumbent is hydro which is very difficult to push out, especially when we're talking about decarbonization. Mm -hmm. So the places that have the most carbon-fired electrical power generation is in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And uh, historically in Ontario, that's come down a lot. And so there is really where the opportunity is if you think about carbon policy and pushing out, for example, coal, where you said earlier on, now wind is cheaper than coal. Mm -hmm. So can can you talk about this geographic opportunity set which is i think also why you're having this conference in Alberta because Alberta is one of the prime markets for renewables.
2: Yeah, I think you've really hit the nail on the head identifying Alberta and Saskatchewan as well. Both jurisdictions that have opportunities for significant substitution, both have significant opportunities for decarbonization where they're both quite coal heavy. Um, And both are provinces that are really taking steps to decarbonize their electricity sector. Here in Alberta, there's currently the renewable electricity program that has a goal of 30% renewables by 2030 and even before the renewable electricity program was started, you know, 1500 megawatts of capacity came from wind sources. So, you know, there's a lot of know-how, there's a lot of understanding, there's a lot of comfort with renewables here. Really got the province in the position to deliver on, you know, low-cost reasonably geographically diverse wind here in the province. Saskatchewan as well, they have their regulation for GHG reductions in the electricity sector. They've got a 40% carbon reduction goal for Sask Power, their crown utility, and that is really going to be driven until 2030 by a series of, of wind procurements as well. The other benefit that they both share on top of policy is that in southeastern Alberta and southwestern Saskatchewan, you have capacity factors of the wind, which is basically the amount of time that, that electricity is being generated. You're looking at a capacity factor in the neighborhood of, you know, 35 to 45%, depending on so where. So what you're, you're
1: saying is the wind blows the wind 45, blows. 45% okay. of the time. We're only at about 5% according to stats can, so it's a, seems to me like a pretty ambitious goal to go 25% where you have to push out these things. And I know we've got the policy in place to push out the coal. Mm -hmm. Under the current government, we'll talk politics here in a minute, Mm -hmm. but is it realistic to be able to install that much capacity basically in 10 years?
2: Yeah, I think that with the renewable electricity program. That is something that is doable. I mean, taking a look at the Alberta Electric System Operator with that dispatchable renewables and storage study, they say 30% is something that we're confident we can hit by 2030. 30% renewables is something we're confident that we can integrate. With the first three rounds of the renewable electricity program procurements, we're going to be adding in the next two years another 1,300.
0: Okay, so we we had these three auctions in Alberta, and as you had just said, 1,300 new megawatts of capacity was awarded, and uh, there were three different rounds, uh, very low prices paid in the range of 3.7 cents per kilowatt hour across all of them. So can you just talk a little bit about how these contracts were awarded? Were they competitive? Are Mm -hmm. these companies guaranteed that price, and for how long?
2: So basically, this was awarded based on the lowest cost megawatt hour that could be sold to the grid. So what the contract does, it provides what's called a contract for difference to the winners. What the contract for difference requires is that the contract holder continue to participate in the market... And if the price that they have bid in is, is available at the market, they don't get support from government. They continue to just pull in market revenues. If the market rate is lower than what their bid price was, then the Alberta Electric System Operator makes up the difference. So if the bid price was three and a half cents and the market price was three cents, then they get a half a cent for every every kilowatt hour that's okay. sold. So
1: this will be the this will be the company that builds and installs the wind turbines. Yes. will get the difference. The difference.
0: Yeah. And so then, it's basically a guaranteed floor and then some upside if power prices are higher. N- no upside. That that's
2: the twist in this is so that that's the other side of it is if the pool price is higher than what the bid price was, Mm -hmm. then the generator returns that money to the system. Okay,
0: so it's a guaranteed price that they get
2: for these terms. And how long are these terms? It's a 20 year term. And these have come in um, particularly competitively. Over the last 10 years, the pool price has been about 5.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And as you said, 3.7 cents as the average of the, of the first procurement. Comparing that to what the historical price has been, I mean, these are a pretty good deal for, for Albertans.
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, most people probably don't look at the minutiae of their electricity bill, but what does our average Albertan pay for electricity? Retail.
2: Average Alberton pays under six cents yeah. or so. So, yeah. so this yeah. is
1: a wholesale price: three and a half cents yeah. for wind. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So we're going to see thirteen hundred new megawatts of capacity coming over the next uh, several years, and maybe more because the province did mandate even adding more megawatts of renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, How do people feel um, where these wind farms are being built? Are there concerns by local stakeholders, landowners, that they don't want these wind facilities in their backyard, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. NIMBYism? Yeah, I think
2: that in Alberta, we typically see, by and large, a lot of support for wind farms going in in communities. And and there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. Uh, One of them is there's already been 1500 megawatts of wind built in the province. Uh, the industry has been around for more than two decades. The places where wind typically gets built, the communities are getting used to the wind being there. It's nothing new. So there's not a, there's not as much explanation of what these are. Another thing is in Southern Alberta, especially people have lots of land that they are accustomed to using as revenue generators. You know, These are places where people are ranching and farming. Having wind turbines on a person's uh, land is just another, some people call, the droughtless crop because it continues to generate and, and pay royalties and things like that. Yeah,
1: just like an oil well. Do you have any numbers? What, what's, what does a farmer make for a wind turbine on his property?
2: I can't say specifically what it is, it's very generous, and it's generous enough that we see the amount of wind that we see without a right of entry for the companies mm-hmm. that want to build. So the farmers, unlike when it comes to uh, you know a, a gas well or something like that or a pipeline right of way, there is uh, you know the, the Surface Rights Act doesn't apply, meaning that if the landowner doesn't feel that they're getting a good deal on this or that they're being well protected, they don't end up having to have this on their land. So there's a real aspect of partnership here where companies try to approach the landowners and have this partnership where they're going in business together. Okay. So
1: there is this partnership idea going into business together. There's money. So the NIMBYism is overcome largely. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to probably see more wind turbines dotting the countryside as you drive around Alberta and Saskatchewan. Let's talk about the, the, the policy side of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, because uh, so much of this to date has been driven by the NDP government when they came in to phase out coal and bring in the renewables. What happens next week?
2: The NDP's commitments is to continue with the climate leadership plan, to continue with the renewable electricity program. There was, uh, prior to the election, the energy minister directed the ASO to make a recommendation on the next round of REP, uh, which would be delivered May 3rd, that recommendation. So if we see an NDP government, I think that we continue to, st- you know, its status quo for the way that it's been for the last several years. If we see a UCP government, what we end up seeing is a different framework for the way that wind moves forward and renewables move forward in the province I mean overall I'm an optimist though I mean looking at the way that that wind has been developed here in, in the past we've seen lots of interest in wind 1500 megawatts of, of capacity already built And one thing that we say is you know the renewable electricity program is the way to deliver the lowest cost wind energy to Albertans because it it reduces volatility and it derisks say, the province. At, yeah, province I'm going to come back
1: to the UCP and the policy in a second, yep. but there's a lot of people out there that say my electricity bill is going to go up over yep. time because of all this renewable policy. What do you say to that? Well,
0: and Jason Kinney actually has said that in this mm-hmm. campaign that he's concerned about the renewable policy making electricity prices more expensive in Alberta.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I would say that I, I think the proof is in the pudding of the costs for these contracts that we've gotten and the fact that even when there could be a windfall on the market side, that money is all returned to government. I, you know, I think that the added wind capacity and the added wind generation is is going to have a minimal impact, if any, on, on people's power bills. And to the the claims about you know more wind making prices more expensive, I think we have a market based system here in Alberta. If we have to move to a post rep world, I think that wind is going to continue being added to the grid. Um, wind is a price taker from the electricity price here coal that's online and gas really set what the prices are. Mm-hmm. And if wind facilities can get some sort of value for their environmental attributes, if there is a federal carbon price that's put onto Alberta as well, like there's, there are going to be ways to build what we call revenue stacks to, to bring in enough revenue to build projects. And like I say, at the prices that we see, it's hard to see how there's going yeah, to be I, mean, I, in, I think the, in power the, bills. The, the, the,
1: the belief that the prices were going to go up were predicated on the Ontario experience. Mm-hmm, For example, mm-hmm. a decade or less ago, Ontario was putting out these auctions and bids, but they were paying like 80 cents, I think it was. Yeah,
2: it was, yeah, it was it, even more it than was that. It was even more than that yeah. because
1: it was in the early days. It's only been 10 years, but it's in the early days of wind before the costs and the technology improved. And so today, the auction does speak for itself. Or mm-hmm. three, was it three point seven cents or something, or three and a half cents? I mean, that is a dramatic fall. And we talked about the ability to compete with coal. But I'm still, I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. um, a little bit skeptical that, in the absence of policy, and in the absence of a lot of electricity growth, that you know you're going to be able to substitute for. You know, these incumbents that, that are uh, pretty resilient.
2: Yeah, I can understand those concerns. I, I think the thing is we still have a federal coal phase out mandate mm-hmm. that is going to free up some of that space as far as capacity goes. I think one other option that uh, I know that a, a number of our members are looking at, especially now that prices are discovered, is going the corporate power purchase agreement route where you may have- right. Companies that want to hedge against uh, increasing power prices, which you know power prices have been quite low over the last several years, and and you know are kind of coming back to maybe a more equilibrium level that we're used to, but people may want to hedge against that volatility. They want to deal with their compliance obligations for carbon. So let, let's
1: explore that. So what you're saying is, okay, right now the wind operator, just loosely, and correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah operated by a big utility, then puts it through the electrical grid and sells it to the commercial corporation, say a big steel plant or some other industrial concern, right? The corporate PPA basically, pardon the pun, short circuits the uh, the utility, right? And says, okay, I'm a wind supplier, I'm going to sell to you direct. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yeah.
0: And then they get 3.7 cents a kilowatt hour when they use their own wind power. And that may be a lot cheaper than what they're buying off the grid. And so, like you say, it's like almost a hedge in that they've guaranteed their price for the next 20 years for
2: 40%
0: of the time if they happen to be using a wind farm in
2: southern Alberta. Yeah, and if you're operating around the clock and and you do have a load that requires electricity all the time, like 40% is a pretty big chunk. And then if you can throw in an agreement on the environmental attributes or you know carbon mm-hmm. credits or offsets depending on what that that looks like under a new program like mm-hmm. and if that's worth $20 a, a ton which can work out to the neighborhood of you know depending on what regime is in place like that could be between $12 and, and $15 per megawatt hour, like suddenly that becomes pretty attractive. And then or there's $40. the other attribute.
0: A lot of companies are really conscious about their carbon emissions and you know they have pressure from their shareholders mm-hmm. to show that they're improving in terms of their greenhouse gas intensity. So I think there's other drivers there as well to uh, show that your power is cleaner.
1: Mm-hmm. So do you foresee, for example, in communities, I'll call them smaller scale wind farms, popping up to... As we said earlier, sort of short circuit the grid because I mean transmission takes up uh, a lot of cost, right? I mm-hmm, mean, it's mm-hmm. it's costly to put through the through the grid lines.
2: Yeah, and that, sort
1: of short circuit that and go, hey, okay, here's this wind farm directly to a community.
2: That is one thing that we've been keeping an eye on uh, at the association. There is under the, the the current government they changed the regulation for. Distribution connected or community scaled projects, so that we now in Alberta understand what that actually means and understand how to connect those projects. There is, uh, you know, and the election could have an impact on this. There is a community. Project program coming in September is when that's been announced. I mean, we'll see after the election what the future of that is, but we do now have a regulation that says, this is how you actually connect projects of this size to the grid. And this is Mm -hmm. what it means. Certainly there are companies in our membership that have really focused on that kind of development overseas. And it's going to be interesting to see what kind of innovation is brought to that. Uh, here in Alberta, now that there's actually a set of rules in place for how you can connect these to the right. grid. So
0: we're going to have potentially companies doing this and and communities potentially sourcing their own power directly. Yeah, Well, it's all
1: very fascinating. I mean, if I could summarize the excitement here is in Alberta and Saskatchewan, because that's where the greatest potential for substitutability is in Canada for coal power generation, Mm -hmm. and to a certain degree, natural gas-fired power generation. Here in Alberta, under the re-election of an NDP government, it's status quo with a plan to 2030. Under UCP, a little more uncertain because we don't really know how that's all gonna play out. But from a wind perspective, the great news is is that the costs have really come down to the point where you're competitive, certainly with coal-fired power plants, as we said at the outset, Mm -hmm. so that there is excitement, and that excitement is likely to be Talked about at next week's conference.
2: Yes, thank you. That's a, that's a really great bow to put on that. Yeah, a lot of a lot more discussion about this and and all of the factors that influence the policy part at the conference this mm-hmm.
1: week. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Evan. And uh, again, for the listeners, if you're inclined next Wednesday to go out to the Banff Springs Hotel to the Canadian Wind Energy Association Spring Forum, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. I think there's, uh, what, a couple hundred people probably? Yeah,
2: there'll be a couple hundred people, experts in the field of of wind, so it should be a great rollicking couple
1: days of discussion. Great. Well, we look forward to that. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you, and thank you listeners for uh, following us. And if you like this podcast, please rate us on your app and also tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.